This is Daniel Fagella, and you're listening to the AI Futures Saturday series here on the AI and Business Podcast. This is episode 10 of 12 of our series on AI governance. As I've mentioned at the very beginning of this show, the intention of this Saturday series is to stretch the imagination of our listeners from the near-term implications of AI, which is much of what we cover at Emerge and much of our private sector work with companies, into thinking about the longer-term consequences of artificial intelligence, and in this series, how it will be managed and governed. With each episode, we're moving farther and farther into the future. Our episode this week is with Steve Omohundro. Steve Omohundro, for something like the last 15 years, has been a proponent for safe artificial intelligence and has put forth a lot of thought around how that might be achieved technically and otherwise. One of Steve's earliest works that I was familiar with is called The Basic AI Drives. If you type that into Google, The Basic AI Drives, you'll find a 2008 PDF that essentially breaks down some of his hypotheses here around why strong artificial intelligence might in fact be dangerous, why it might set its own objectives, why it might be concerned for its own survival if it got beyond a certain threshold of intelligence. None of us have a crystal ball, but there's certainly some facets of a GI that are worth considering, that is artificial general intelligence. And Steve Mahundro has been a major contributor to this space and someone who I was fortunate enough to interview something like six or seven years ago. So it's great to be able to have him back in the program and talk more boots on the ground around what governance might look like. He's currently the chief scientist at AI Brain, and he is based in Palo Alto, California. In this episode, Steve goes into what facets of AI development and deployment might require governance, even at a global level, and maybe which ones won't, and also how the global community might come together around forging priorities for the development of artificial general intelligence. What might that look like? There's also some interesting perspective here as to how AGI will make it into our lives as consumers, including how chatbots and personal assistants might evolve. Uh, So Steve's got a a wealth of ideas ranging from the relatively near term to the relatively long term. We certainly get into a lot of the artificial general intelligence long term concerns here. So I hope you'll enjoy this episode. Again, this is 10 of 12 in our series on AI governance. And we're glad to have Mr. Steve Omohundro with us here. So without further ado, we're going to roll right into this episode. So, Steve, uh, I wanted to start us off here by talking about kind of centralized AI governance. There's more talk now about regulation relating to AI. Some people are concerned more about when AI becomes much more powerful, that there needs to be some kind of governance thereof. What are your thoughts kind of for and against when it comes to centralizing global governance of AI? Yeah, I think that's going to be a really central question. Um, And I think there are different phases. Right now, we're in a phase where AI is starting to influence every business on the planet. There's these new businesses, these platform companies that are driven by AI uh, that hook up producers and consumers. And it's really transforming the landscape of business. I think as we move forward a few years, AI is going to get more powerful. It's going to get more integrated into society. I expect to see AI playing more of a governmental function. And then longer term, I think it will play, you know, every military is very interested in AI and so oh, yeah. it's going to play military function. And so the potential impacts of AI are going to be increasing, you know, monotonically from here, I would say. And clearly in the longer term picture, you know, things about AI warfare, you know, we, we're going to need the same kinds of worldwide governance of that type of behavior that we have today, say, around landmines. And so there's starting to be voices, you know, discussing some of yep. those things. So my picture of the long term is that we're going to have a much more nuanced society 
with some very important, very risky issues, maybe global warming, maybe you know um, lethal autonomous weapons, that kind of thing, need to be decided and governed at the at the world level. And then other things will be much more at the local level. And I think AI can enable a much richer and much more semantically uh, precise notion of what is governed where, what are the rules of interaction, how do people, you know, how do you gather the needs and interests of a population and make decisions on the basis of that. Uh, how we get from where we are today to that, I think yeah. is going to be, I expect some huge discussions there. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, clearly, as you said, complicated, but let me just put it in a nutshell and then we'll kind of anchor around this idea you've just articulated and talk about kind of the near term towards the long term. So um, it sounds as though you're of the belief that, yes, there will be a, a, a set of topics that the sort of species will have to, you know, despite our political differences, kind of walk into the same room or you know, virtually or otherwise and sort of have a way that we've agreed we're going to deal with this because we all have to survive. So there will be some yeah. level of that. But then there will be more granular, regional or super local things that will be kind of splintered out and maybe just voted on within a geo region. And maybe those opinion polls will come in from people in different ways. So participation might be, you know, funneled up through a lot more technologies. But you're supposing that that there will be this kind of latticed network of kind of the tippity top of world leaders like, hey, this is like hard holding each other to the fire stuff all the way down to, you know, who's going to be the regional school administrator in, you know, Hoboken or something. Um, exactly. OK, so this is the way that you see things kind of eventually leading to. Yeah. And let me add one little extra nuance, which is I think today those networks of agreements and so on would all be human. You know, you have the leader of the United States makes an agreement with the leader of China and they shake hands and they write things on paper. Much of that is going to be replaced by AI systems. And that has both you know, good and bad aspects. One of the really good aspects is that AIs, at least future AIs, will be transparent. You'll be able to see exactly what the intentions of, say, an AI government system are so that you don't have to worry. Oh, does Trump really mean what he's saying here? If you have an AI playing the role of, say, you know, checking to make sure that both sides are doing what they said they're going to do, you can look at a source code. You can have mathematical proofs that that AI is checking for the right things. And so I think there's a, a new class of possibilities that's going to emerge as AIs become more integrated into the political system. Huh. Yeah, I, I think some folks are of the belief that we will get out of the black box woods. I think others are less confident that we will. Um, hopefully, in the context of governance, we will be as far towards transparency and, and kind of understandability as, as we can be. Do you foresee like a U.S. AI sort of negotiating with a Chinese AI, uh, for lack of better terms here, to, to come up with these agreements, as you said? Or do you see more of an AI as arbitrator that everybody can access the source code and kind of double check to some degree? How do you see AI playing a role in sort of this balance of power, this understanding of different, I guess, motives and alignments uh, globally. Yeah, well, I think both of those things that you just said will happen. That today's AI, you know, the dominant technology are, are deep learning neural networks, which are doing amazing things, you know, improving very rapidly, but they're fairly obscure. They're pretty yeah. hard to understand, inscrutable. That's going to change very rapidly if for no other reason. Like one, one of the, there's a whole bunch of work going on about explainable AI. Yes. And one of the approaches is you have the AI explain itself, you know, <laughs> and I'm especially interested in AI for designing other AIs, uh, sort of meta learning, auto machine learning. There's a, a number of topics sort of around that. Yeah. And so 
even if today's AIs are these complicated things nobody can understand, like the hot language models these days are derivatives of something called BERT, and uh, like Microsoft just built a 17 billion parameter network that's the best English language model in, in human history, but it's inscrutable. You can't figure out what it knows and what it doesn't yeah, know. Yeah. But that can serve as the basis for building an understandable model using you know, principles of mathematical logic with provable characteristics. And so especially for AIs involved in negotiation, in making contracts, and in validating that those contracts are being satisfied, that's where you need full transparency. Yeah. And, uh, and transparency for everyone, I would say. You know, there's certain things which are secret, but, but for the most part, uh, much of the sort of operations of a government should be transparent, at least to the, the country's citizens and probably to everyone in the world. Huh. So, all right, I'm going to poke into this a little bit more and then talk about what we think those bigger AI topics would be that would actually sit at that, you know, like you had said, global warming kind of level. There may be a level above global warming, to be frank, but um, we'll just talk about that level for now. But in, in terms of this contract sort of negotiatory governance application of, of AI, I think that there is sort of a utopic idea and something worth striving for whereby we could sort of understand, you know, why a certain decision was made, sort of what were the factors and features that weighed in what way. Those are going to be so complicated that actually readouts, I don't know if they're always going to be super understandable in and of themselves, but maybe that's better than nothing. I can also see kind of the, the dystopic reality where AIs become extremely good at framing negotiations and contracts to behoove their own ends or the, the ends of their countries. And that there's almost an arms race in like legal jargon, legal mechanization, legal tactic strategy stuff where you couldn't possibly have a human try to, you know, argue with this contract because there's so many hidden layered things that, you know, six months from now we're going to release, you know, this new demand that we can then pull on that string and then take advantage of that. And, and so I, I can see an arms race in terms of negotiation ability with these machines if they actually step into that role. Do you think that's unrealistic? Do you think that that's uh, likely? Oh, very likely. I mean, just look at what the legal profession is like. I mean, lawyers get paid, I don't know, some lawyers are more than $1,000 an hour because they can do that, right? Yeah. They know exactly what terms to put in there that'll have some value in the future. And there's a lot of trying to convince the other side using psychological techniques. Very clearly, those things are, in fact, there's huge industries now of making AIs that can do that kind of thing. Much of the manipulation type stuff is manipulating the nature of human psychology. And so if you know one side starts using AI for that, well, then you certainly don't want a human negotiating with them because they'll be very manipulable. And so that will drive AI, AI negotiations. You know, once the negotiation is done, you certainly, you know, want to be able to explain to the human what's going on. Yeah. And certainly provide the sort of ground rules of what is it we're trying to accomplish here. But the actual negotiation, I think you're probably right. that It will get too complex for humans to be in the middle of. Probably, you know, one of the goals should be to come to agreements that the humans on both sides can understand. Because if they can't understand it, then that's a risky place. You know, things could be hidden there. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's going to play out. I mean, certainly the issues you're talking about are at the big, big level, yep. the government, they're very important there, but that's going to happen in every single interaction. You know, if I'm buying something on Amazon, there's some rules about, did they ship it to me? Did I make my payment? What if the product is broken? What if the box is broken? You know, what are the rules there? And uh, today, you know, that some person sort of wrote those things down and it's not, you know, and it's very hard for a 
purchaser on eBay to make sure they're, you know, everything's working right. All of that is going to be automated very quickly if it's not already happening at the moment. And so I think it's going to start at the very bottom level to enable, you know, financial transactions, economic transactions, and it'll work its way up to the more complex, more higher value areas. I tell you, Steve, I've just seen these flashes of a dystopic vision of, uh, and I'm not saying it's the end of the world. I'm just saying it's it's interesting, but also feels bothersome where any small business that starts an e-commerce store has a programmatically generated super ideal legal setup for how refunds work so that they can maximize profitability about how they hold, you know, buyers and sellers accountable so that they can maximize profitability. I'm not saying profitability is bad. I'm just saying, and then consumers can't possibly read these really nice, snug, hyper-strategic agreements from every company that they work with. And so there's consumer AI that will crawl things before like a consumer is able to approve them, or at least a consumer could allow it to be crawled and then bring things to bear for that. Like I can see a world where we need AI to make it scrutable because the legal kind of hubbub is going to be so intense, even, even just for consumer agreements. Oh, totally. In fact, I actually, I think that's a utopian view that every, every person should have their own AI that knows what they care about, what their values are, what matters to them, and serve as their agent in interacting with the rest of the world. We need that today. Do you ever read your, you know, agreements on these things? No, oh, no never, person. never. N- nobody does. Yeah. I mean, well, I'm, I'm with you. I think that there's um, all sorts of the idea of that companion who stands up for you. In other words, you go to buy, you know, double A batteries online, you know, and, and it figures out all the different places and scours for all the different coupon codes and gets you the order that, you know, doesn't involve some recurring shipment that doesn't write everything optimized to your needs. I think that that's certainly better than counting on a Siri that wants you to buy more Apple products or an Amazon that wants you to, you know, buy groceries through it or whatever the case may be. I'm not saying those guys are bad. I'm just saying they have their own incentives. So clearly having an AI to represent yours, of course, it seems quite likely that like with other technologies, we'd come to depend on it. Maybe our our personality and selves and decision-making ability would merge within some interesting ways. That's all part of the grander, bigger picture. Let me get back to governance. Uh, I can see to your point how that could actually be good. And I think probably there is a good way to get that done. When it comes to the AI issues that you think are going to have to sit at the high level, the things talked about today are sometimes things around AI being used uh, in ways that violate human rights. Some people think that these things need to be in the global governance conversation. Certainly, I just came back from the OECD in Paris recently. They're really kind of focused on policies in that domain, uh, at least in kind of soft law and agreements, and then eventually potentially making it more serious. There's other folks that are thinking more about the longer term, not just security, privacy, near-term stuff, but when AI becomes very powerful, when this technology will be better at running businesses or governing states than human beings, maybe we as humans need to be on the same page about what kind of intelligence is to build. And so some people think that those belong at the very tippy top of kind of global centralization and global agreement. What are the things that for you with regards to AI, whether now or, or stretching forward, do you think will really have to be a humans coming together uh, sort of topics? What, what sort of fits that bill in your opinion? Well, I mean, certainly the obvious one is anything that's an existential risk. And so like right now we're dealing with this coronavirus, you know, very scary pandemic. Um, we're having, you know, countries are having to manage the flows of people. And, um, and so that's an example of a problem that really requires a global solution. Very soon we're going to have AIs that uh, can design Proteins can design potentially viruses. We probably need to limit, you know, the bioweapons, AI designed bioweapons is probably something that the world does not need or want, but that's going to require agreements to get there. 
Uh, I noticed that uh, in the US, they've just made it illegal to have a drone with any kind of a weapon on it. So you're not allowed, if you put a, a bomb or a gun or even a, I think a knife on, on a drone, that's like a $25,000 fine and there's jail time and all of that. Yeah. And that's an example of a, you know, we have this fairly simple technology, drones, and then you can pretty easily see how that could be misused in a bad way. And so we need to regulate it. And, you know, AI can enable things that are way, way more challenging than that. And so certainly I think, you know, that kind of thing, anything having to do with, you know, uh, weapons, biological stuff. But as you started mentioning, some of these are going to be more subtle, such as economic manipulation, right? Yeah. Disinformation campaigns. Yep. You know, there's all kinds of worries about one country manipulating the elections of another country by taking out ads, you know? And so, you know, what's the regulation for that? How do you detect it? How do you put the boundaries on it? What is allowed? What isn't allowed there? And so that's where I think the discussion gets a lot subtler. I agree. And it's also so much easier to look for, you know, some uranium stores than it is to look for code. You know, are we using this code to create a diabetes medication? Or are we using this code to make a bioweapon? You know, it, it feels really amorphous to me. You know, some people liken what we need to do with regards to AI. You're talking about lethal autonomous weapons. But you're also talking about the more subtle kind of political manipulation, the other things where these technologies could be used in a lack of better terms, weaponized way. Is the analogy, do you think that a structure like the UN, the way that you might foresee it were to go well, would be a fitting sort of kind of venue, a fitting kind of means and mode of coming to these kinds of agreements, of, of holding different countries kind of feet to the fire and coming up with, the, with agreements that we all can sort of say that we're going we're gonna to hang on to? Do you think it needs to be looser and less centralized than that, more of a collaboration, less of a centralization? Or do you think it needs to be maybe tighter in some way because we need to inspect things that are much harder to see than a, a missile that we can see from a satellite image anyway? What are your thoughts on the actual mechanisms at play here to make this governance happen at that very high level? So I you know, as we were talking earlier, I think it's going to be a fractal hierarchical structure with the really serious issues up at the top and the, you know, more amorphous, less serious things, such as perhaps disinformation campaigns lower down. And the nature of groups coming together to make agreements is going to change. You know, today we use mechanisms like voting, which are very crude. There are, you know, some subtleties in voting. There's a very cool thing called quadratic voting, which is sort of better at getting the real needs of a group to be expressed in a decision. Hmm. And so I would expect that future versions of the, of the UN are going to use much more sophisticated technologies in order to get more subtlety about the issues they're discussing out and to aggregate the interests of the different countries in a much better way. Um, and so a digital version of the UN that's AI-driven AI and just true semantics, I think, you know, is, is going to go. Having a single governing body, you know, for everything is probably not the right structure. Then it's going to be a much more intricate, complex uh, sort of hierarchy. Who would own, monitor, manage this sort of any kind of central system whereby different inputs are put in and different kinds of voting results or, or conclusions come out the back end of? Who owns this? Who manages this? Uh, how could such a thing be examined unless it was maybe... I don't know, based at some global multinational headquarters in some hyper-isolated place so it couldn't be super-duper tinkered with every day? you know, Or might there be a way for something of that nature to live in the cloud and to be kind of shared in a way where it can't be tinkered with? I'm not sure what your thoughts are, but I'd be interested in how you see that not getting cracked. 
Yeah, so I think that calls forth the absolute need for new transparency technologies. Somebody's gonna have that running on some machine somewhere, but it should be for all parties to trust that the process that they're engaged in is happening the way they think it is. There needs to be technologies for transparency. The, the cryptocurrency people, like uh, especially in the Ethereum world, have developed these ideas that they call smart contracts, which are openly visible agreements between parties uh, that anybody can look at and they make certain things happen on blockchains. That's one vision yeah, I would say yeah. today are pretty crude. AI combined with cryptographic techniques could create structures where all parties have high confidence that things are the way they think they are. Huh, okay, cool. And when you think about sort of these issues that need to fit in at that highest level where there needs to be potentially some degree of global, at least discourse, maybe global soft law, maybe global hard law. Do you think that the developments of AI or potentially of brain computer interface and other kinds of intelligence augmenting and enhancing types of technologies need to fit that bill? In fact, you know, I think some people argue that if we are sort of on a, a bit of a transhuman, posthuman trajectory in terms of creating something more powerful than ourselves, whether it be vastly augmented humans who are just unbelievably, incomprehensibly farther ahead of regular folks in terms of memory, creativity, intelligence, et cetera, or, or strong AI, that we couldn't have different countries creating those kind of posthuman intelligences on their own in a state of nature, because it seems quite clear that they would almost ubiquitously sort of just use them to, to dominate economically, militarily, technologically, and, and ensure that they would be able to kind of stay at the top and maybe conflict would result. Do you believe that the inevitable trajectory of intelligence requires a same pagedness around that path, uh, around agreement of what path humanity takes, or or do you differ from, from that perspective? Yeah, I think that's a really, really key and critical question. If you look at what's going on now, it's a funny mix of sort of a lot of competitive rhetoric. You know, Vladimir Putin came out and said, uh, you know, the country that leads in AI will dominate the world. Rule the world, yeah, yeah, yeah. World, yeah. China came out and said, you know, oh, by 2030, we're going to be the preeminent AI, you know, country in the yep, world. Yep. And so, on the other hand, so far at least, AI research has been unbelievably collaborative. I mean, my expectation. I've been in doing AI for 35 years now, exposing how old I am. And I thought that once somebody like had a really good speech recognizer, that would be their secret sauce, and they would keep that, you know, hidden away, and they make all kinds of money on it. So far, people are giving away their very best systems, like the best natural language models is this BERT model, and Google just published it, gave away the code. And everybody, all the other companies are all, you know, building on that, making better versions. Yeah. And so from a research point of view, that's fantastic. You know, you can do all this stuff. from a societal point of view. It's like, huh, is this going to keep going? So I find it a little confusing, the state that we're in right now, which is a mix of this sort of competitive rhetoric together with a sort of collaborative, you know, we're all researchers all around the world working together. I feel like I could nutshell that, at least from my take, Steve. I, I feel like the collaborative rhetoric is from, you know, the, the technology world, right? Montreal, San Francisco, Boston, you know, it, it seems like the collaborative shtick comes from sort of the, the technology hubs, particularly in the West, that are sort of really of the belief that 
you know, an aggregate sharing is maybe a responsibility or maybe kind of a good thing, whatever. I think the folks that are taking the more realist approach of, hey, you know, different countries are going to be out for their own ends and, and we shouldn't necessarily create conflict, but we do need to understand we still need to be strong. We still need to maintain a potential advantage here. I think those are more folks maybe in the traditional enterprise world or, or certainly in the political space, definitely in the military space, um, who are aware yeah. of those dynamics. I think when you go to San Francisco, Steve, personal hot take here, I think that the reality of like the world not automatically being free and prosperous is sort of like evaporated. Mm -hmm. And like, it's very much assumed that that'll always be the case. Even if the West were to falter and fall drastically behind China in every way, shape or form, surely all of our freedoms would be maintained because they're mm -hmm. in the, they're in the ether. We just breathe them in. And so right. I think sharing comes from that quadrant, which by the way, is not a bad quadrant. I lived there for three years, got nothing against it personally. I just think it's a philosophy. Um, and then I think the other philosophy is from a little bit of more of a grittier kind of exposed kind of version of reality uh, of that kind of realism of, of competition. So I, I actually don't see that collaborativeness really, that, that inherent like all is well, share it all kind of shtick happening outside of, you know, basically like Montreal and SF as like beacons of that kind of political take. Yeah. That, that's, that's my and, opinion. And there do be signs that that may be easing a bit. The, the, the story of open AI is a fascinating one Isn't where it? that was Isn't it? five years ago with the vision of total openness is the way to deal with AI risks. And more recently, they've, uh, you know, accepted, I think, a billion dollars from Microsoft. They decided they're not going to publish everything that, uh, you know, the GPT-2 was their language model that they kept internal. I think they've released it now. And a bunch of articles have just come out in the last week sort of saying, you know, that, oh, they've, you know, lost their way and all kinds yeah, of things yeah, like that. Yeah. Sort of the two cultures that you mentioned sort of coming together, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I only think, to be honest, I, I think that the, hey, share it all, happy-go-friendly take, I think only exists when you are the less powerful. I think that when it makes sense to consolidate, you do. I think that Robespierre did it. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that what rebel, once he has the scepter in hand, doesn't just want the rebellion to to kind of quiet the ever-loving hell down. And, and, and I think that sharing sort of spawns from maybe not weakness, but relative powerlessness. And so I, I think mm -hmm. that China, I would be, I would suspect pound for pound, their companies are sharing vastly less with the West than the West with them. And Steve, I make no bones about it. They would certainly prefer it to be that way. Certainly yeah. prefer it to be that way. Um, so I don't, I don't see sharing as a ubiquitous and universal thing, nor do I think it's like uniquely Western and good. I'm not calling the West good in this case. I'm just saying I really see it being one-sided in a way that might tip the scales a little dangerously towards the advantage of the East. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, the example of Huawei is a fascinating one where mm. Huawei was leading in 5G. Uh, almost yes. all 5G equipment is all Huawei stuff. And I suspect, I don't know anything you know, uh, hidden, that the, the big anti-Huawei push that started maybe a year or so ago was about renormalizing that balance, where I think, I think the U.S. saw that if all 5G routers were Huawei routers, that was a huge risk, a huge uh, strategic security risk. Security risk, yeah. Security risk. So now, but it's interesting what they did is they sort of stopped allowing export of a certain technologies to Huawei to the point where now they've, I think they've prevented the Huawei cell phones from using Android, which yeah. is the Google yep. system. That yep. forces Huawei to develop their own operating system. Yes. Harmony. I'm not sure that was such a strategically good move, you know, even thinking about the, you know, competition between China and the U.S. Yeah, I 
I agree. I mean, I agree with you. I think it's very complicated and, and what the blowback is and a further bifurcation of the internet and further disconnection of peoples who I'm sure would get along just damn fine, even though their politicians don't think the same way. That feels like the shame of the cosmopolitan spirit. I dislike seeing that, frankly. I really, really do. But yeah, it's, it, it's a kind of a curious dynamic. I mean, when you think about this sort of, let's say we're a few years ahead here and we're starting to look at more strong AI really come to the fore, AI that is doing a better job of negotiating these international agreements, maybe running businesses, developing business models, everything from medicine to the economy to you name it. We start to get the sense that, hey, all of us different nations here, particularly probably the US and China, but others might very well be in the game. Are we all going to build our own kind of brain computer interface and our own strong AI in whatever direction we want? Or do we need to kind of bound and hem where we as a species want the intelligence trajectory to shoot out? It could be argued whether it's reasonable to actually ask for such a thing. But do you think that that would be necessary or good, that degree of centralization around those decisions, the big decisions, long ball on intelligence? That's actually, I mean, seeing what I think the biggest risks are in our fairly near term, next Hmm. few decades because we don't have the infrastructure to manage those risks at the moment. And so, like you say, you know, we're seeing very, very rapid advancing of AI technologies. Uh, just one I've just been studying recently, I don't know if you know about Generative Adversarial Networks, GANs. Yeah. Uh, it's a structure that was invented, oh, you know, a few years ago. Yeah. In, in 2018, there were 11,800 papers about GANs, more than one paper per hour. Yeah, so, it's nuts. <laughs> It's nuts. A nuts explosion. Yeah. These new technologies, these new ideas. And I don't see any signs of it slowing down or stopping. So I expect that next decade, more and more powerful systems. At some point, like you say, they're going to be powerful enough to have dramatic uh, business, military, and political impacts. And that's the moment where somebody may get the idea oh, we're ahead of the other side now we should attack them. Um, I mean, that happened apparently with the nuclear weapons. I think uh, John von Neumann was famous for having had the idea of a first strike on Russia before Russia could develop their own nukes as a, you know, and so just looking at the game theory of it. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. So I hope, I mean, where I would like to get to is a stable structure in which all participants, nobody has an incentive to unilaterally try and, you know, destroy, you know, everybody else. And the question is, how do we get from where we are now, which is kind of, you know, lots of independent separate companies and countries doing their own thing uh, to that stable future point? Uh, It feels like in between there is where there's some some risk. Well, I I think it's it's also quite debatable as to whether such a uh, an ossified plateau next step is is reasonable if we're looking at the AI foom to steal from the Robin Hanson idea and the self-building AI thing that you were just articulating to pull back the old the old terminology from the good old days of when I first got into this uh, AGI stuff and had my first conversation with you. Um, but, but let's just, you know, let's suspect that there is a structure where more peace and prosperity and shared agreement in, in peaceful terms is obtainable because the pipes are set up to do so. I think it's a noble vision. I uh, personally believe it's at least worth thinking about, if not worth overtly striving towards. From a political perspective today, uh, we'll kind of end on these two questions. First, what maybe should governments or could governments be doing to to work towards that sort of a a structure of agreement, a structure of same pagedness for humanity uh, as our concerns start to really be in everybody's backyard, not just in one country's backyard? 
Well, I mean, so one issue is what does it look like technically? So I published some papers about something I call the safe AI scaffolding strategy, which was a technical description of what it might look like to have to avoid the foom. I'm an anti-foomer. I don't think I, I side with either of the people, either. In that argument. Yeah, yeah. Together, because I think it can happen, but I don't think it's a good idea. I'm in <laughs> favor of slow, careful, thoughtful development. And so my safe AI scaffolding strategy is a technique for carefully developing each stage where you have very high confidence that the next stage is safe before you deploy it. So that's what I would like to see happen. It hasn't gotten a huge amount of traction. Nobody else seems to be talking about it. So uh, I don't think I marketed it quite right. Um, but as these systems become more powerful, I think more people are going to realize, holy crap, we're on the edge of some very big changes here. And so I think the, the desire for a careful path forward will become more widespread. At this point, people are still debating, oh, is AI, is strong AI even possible? Even possible, yeah. Do you so, think that such a scaffolding could get past the, the rough and tumble state of nature, the game theory that you had just framed, right? Which I, I just think of as the state of nature. Can we make it so that the U.S. DARPA, for crying out loud, or you know, the People's Liberation Army, for crying out loud, could realistically consider these things or, or set up checks and balances with each other to ensure these things? Do we think that we could ever break through the state of nature with such an idea? Because it still might behoove the powerful. Is there some way around that? Well, I believe we need to create an infrastructure. So, I mean, like, look today at drones. Uh, anybody can buy a drone. Anybody can buy a gun. People have been making YouTube videos of putting guns on drones. Uh, yeah. It's a dangerous thing, right? Yeah, and so dangerous. they're regulating that now, though, and they make the, the punishment high enough so that the individual who's thinking about putting a gun on there and making a YouTube video suddenly is going to think twice. Oh, my God. Yes. I'm going to go to if I do this. That's, within, that's <laughs> within a country where I think law becomes a little bit easier, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, so I think that this will start within country. So DARPA does not want Joe in his basement creating his own no, AI. They don't. No, they no way. Right? Yeah. And so I imagine DARPA in conjunction will suddenly start creating regulations. Okay, you're not allowed to have a home bio lab in your basement. And maybe if you're working on advanced AI, maybe you can't run it on an arbitrary computer. Maybe it needs to be in the cloud with AI, other AIs which watch and make sure nothing dangerous is happening. Hmm. Um, I expect, you know, some people may find that draconian and, oh, my God, my freedoms to execute programs are being limited. I think we're going to have to go there. But to wow. do that in a way that is safe and transparent rather than dystopian and, and manipulative, the cross-country controls regulation, that's where we get into the need for agreements. And part of the challenge here is what is the rate of advancement of AI technology versus the rate of our ability to make agreements whereby, you know, the Chinese government might be able to monitor U.S. people working on, you know, risky stuff. I mean, how is that going to go? It's, exactly. It's, it feels hard. Right? Transparency seems really hard in this space. I mean, how would you look in all the labs? You know, again, we can't just look for, you know, trucks full of uranium here. Well, one good thing, at least of the current models, is that they're very computationally expensive. <laughs> so you could look at where the computational expenses are and dive into those buckets and figure out what's up. You can potentially put limitations on TPUs or, you know, the yeah, TPUs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The AlphaGo, uh, the Go winning yep, program. Yep. That's a huge data center of, of computation. Oh, yeah. And there's amounts of power. And so fortunately, that level of computation is visible to the world. If it could run on your home PC, then I would say it's pretty hard to regulate. 
Though interestingly, we're discovering that Intel PCs have lower levels of monitoring that uh, are not known to most people. There's a whole third level system running Minix underneath every, every Intel PC that the people are just discovering is there. And so it may be that our current compute infrastructure actually does have enough. Uh, oh, wow. Go uh, figure, huh? So yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but you do think that you, it sounds like don't have a concrete idea. I think it would be maybe too much to ask you for one, but that we should think about transparency intergovernmentally, sort of internationally. We should think about transparency around the particular uses of very, very potentially strong AI, that there should be some checks and balances around potentially compute resource usage and auditing thereof, uh, and, and kind of mutual checks and balances that we should be thinking about that. Absolutely. And okay. To do it well, I mean, it's a balance between, you know, privacy and transparency. Those are the sort of uh, battles. Yeah. Um, there's a great book called The Transparent Society, which explored some of that. And it's, I think that's going to be playing out at many levels. Um, and this is just one of the more extreme ones. You know, people doing stuff on the Internet. They're, they're uh, you know, uh, revealing um, uh, damaging information about the people they know. I mean, we got to limit that, too. Yeah. And so how so that's sort of the same kind of question in, in miniature. And how do we avoid creating a, you know, dystopian fascist society while we prevent these damaging behaviors from occurring? And so how do we ensure that people still have, you know, that law-abiding citizens have freedom and uh, privacy and, you know, live their lives in the way that we hold in high, high esteem, while at the same time preventing people from making you know, uh, bombs and, and harmful AIs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So th these are our challenges for political folks that are thinking a little farther ahead. Those of you who are listening in and are involved in these policy conversations, they clearly go beyond the privacy of today's tech and into how this is managed long ball. And hopefully some of this is food for thought. Steve, last question. I, I could go a little bit more down the business road, but I'm going to say my last question down this road because you had mentioned your position on sort of relatively careful further development of, of increasingly powerful AI and the danger of sort of unbridled just shooting off of the intelligence trajectory, whether that be, I presume, brain-computer interface or AI or whatever. It seems to me that that would require not only global transparency, but to some degree global steering, not just, hey, humanity, you know, we got to keep tabs on each other in terms of who's working on what for AI, but also, hey, humanity, Here's a shared set of futures we've agreed we're not going to effing move closer to. And here's a shared set of futures we've agreed we're going to explore and or explicitly move towards. And that's what our transparency is actually looking for. It seems as though we would need both transparency and steering in terms of international AI. Do you believe those to be intertwined and required? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we see that today in the discussions around uh, lethal autonomous weapons. That's a sort of fairly constrained issue, and there are different philosophical approaches to it, and different countries have different attitudes to it, but at least we can you know, put it on the table and discuss it. As we get to these more abstract concepts, I think it's going to be more challenging. I think AIs will be very useful in these discussions in, in the sense that you can precisely state what are you even talking about? What are the kinds of limits that might actually have a positive effect? What are the risks and dangers that we're trying to prevent against? All of those, I think, we're going to be able to clarify by using intelligent systems as part of the process of doing the negotiation. Huh, curious. Yeah. Any quick ideas on how we're going to come up with those shared visions of what we want and what we don't want across cultures in terms of 
you know, futures or AI capabilities that we want to bar for the near term or pursue for the near term? Well, hopefully most cultures can agree that human extinction is a really bad outcome yeah, yeah. and do whatever we can to avoid that. So there's sort of some ground rule. Begin with the universals, I think, probably does make sense. Yeah. And then, you know, there's fair agreement on, you know, there's Maslow's hierarchy of human need, uh, what it is to live a good, good life. There's the sort of material level, the social level, the more kind of esoteric spiritual level. And different cultures put their emphasis in different places there. But I think that, you know, humans are, are we're the same, same biology, no matter where we live. And I think we want a diversity of um, weightings of what the different characteristics, what's most important for a good life. And so I, I'm, I'm confident that we can find a way to balance the differences between cultures within a, a shared framework of what are the fundamentals that we absolutely have to manage. I, in my most optimistic hour, Steve, I agree wholeheartedly with you, and I'm going to lean on that optimism into my future conversations because I, I think we definitely need some of it. So I know that's all we have for time, but Steve, thanks so much for being able to be here on the interview today. Thank you. Great discussion. So that's all for this episode in the AI Futures series. Our last two episodes in this series, episode 11 and episode 12, are with Ben Gertzel and Hugo de Garris, respectively. Two very well-known names in the artificial general intelligence space. Hugo de Garris put together a paper uh, about two years after I was born in 1989 about uh, artificial general intelligence and its implications for uh, international policy, its implications for conflict uh, and power struggles, and we're going to get a little bit into that when we get to Hugo de Garris. Ben Goertzel has a bit of a different vision and a bit of a, a more optimistic thought process around how these technologies will roll forth and what might be the best way for, in lack of better terms, to birth an artificial general intelligence. That's going to be next Saturday. We'll get into AI governance with Ben Goertzel the Saturday after Hugo de Garris. Hopefully you've enjoyed this series. Uh, let me know your thoughts. If you've got any ideas around whether you want to see this as a separate spin-off podcast or if you'd prefer to see this continue to be part of our Saturday series here on the AI and Business Podcast, drop me a note. It's emerj.com slash pod three. That's P-O-D and then the number three. If you go to emerge.com slash pod three, there's literally a two question survey as to what you'd like to see happen with this AI futures series. I've taken a lot of great feedback from our podcast listeners over the years and this Saturday series is no different. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. So feel free to leave your feedback there. Otherwise, we're going to be diving back into AI use cases coming up on Tuesday. So be sure to catch us here on the AI and business podcast. 